Hello once again, everybody. It is December 11th, at least when it's published. It's December 11th. Welcome back. I'm glad that you are back. Hey, truthfully, though, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for reading. You are persevering, and that's not easy. Um, I know it's a battle. In fact, we were just talking in our Wednesday evening Advent service about how the evil one makes it so hard, the serpent, doesn't he? He makes it so hard sometimes uh, to continue on, to press on and do these kinds of things. But I got to share the story, right? As uh, I'm getting ready to record this session today, I went uh, to use the restroom. And what did I find sprawled out on the bathroom floor? Yep, a little serpent, a little snake. Ugh. Yeah. Don't hate them, but they're not my favorite either. Um, <laughs> so, see, he tries to stop us in more ways than one. I was tempted to say, you know what? I'm just going to record this another day. I'm getting out of here. But I called uh, one of our local congregation members and they took care of me. <laughs> they took care of me by taking care of it. Whew. Anyway, that's all in good fun. Chapter 11 Prayer. We have prayer, we have the battle with Beelzebub, or should I say, we have the people who are accusing Jesus of being part of Beelzebub, which is basically another way of saying Satan or the serpent, Uh, the signs of Jonah. Man, it's an interesting chapter, because what we're going to find from here on out is that Jesus really is going to be somewhat divisive, and that's the way it's supposed to be. We mentioned in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration, that he has his eyes towards the exodus, towards Jerusalem, toward his exit, what God has in store for him. So he knows what's coming. So from really chapter 9 and on, and I guess you could say chapter 11 and on is when it really starts to pick up, that there is certainly going to be more friction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Um, it's supposed to be that way. It's going to pick up. They, they really aren't on the same page. They're not seeing eye to eye. And this will eventually lead us to the point where he will face his crucifixion. Not that this is out of his control, right? It's not that he makes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes so mad that they take matters into their hands and kill him. No, he's laying down his life. But when Jesus is speaking the truth, well, he's speaking it to people that really don't want to hear what he has to say. As a result, yeah, there's going to be friction. That's just the way it is, isn't it? In the world, if you have the truth and you have those who are opposed to the truth so strongly, there will be friction. That's true with the message of God. It's true with the gospel. But it doesn't begin with that friction. It actually begins with Jesus talking, not to the crowds. That's going to come in a little bit. He's talking to the closest of his people. He's talking to the disciples. And they're talking about prayer, right? And you probably noticed first thing, hey, this isn't the same kind of Lord's prayer that we've learned in church. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I mean, come on, Jesus, where's the King James Version, right? Of course not. That's one of those things where, in fact, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that you know, prayer is taught differently. There's a little bit uh, different nuances uh, to this prayer. Does that mean one of them got it right and the other two were wrong? Well, no, it's the fact that the rabbi, Jesus, probably taught his disciples to pray on more than one account. And this is what was written down. Is one prayer better than the other? 
No, of course not. It's great prayer. Of course, the, the key to this whole thing, whether you're looking at it in Matthew's account or Luke's account, it's how you address God. I mean, this is big time. When you go to God, this is what you say. You say, Father. This is kind of mind-blowing. You don't have to have some special address. You don't have to make the right sacrifice. You don't have to be put on the, the right path or the right page. Just say, Father. Father, your name is holy. I'm not going to go through the whole prayer. You know it. But the fact that you're able to call him Father. And Jesus is really going to hit on this by his explanation of what prayer is. Now, something that I should also mention is that as we get into Luke's gospel and go further towards, uh, further towards the crucifixion and resurrection account, not only do we find an increase in the animosity between Jesus uh, and the Pharisees, but what we're also going to find is that the teachings tend to get a little bit more difficult. Not just difficult in terms of understanding, but some of the parables are kind of out there where you're left thinking, well, wait a second, a man does this in the parable, but is that really how we would act or react? Would I really leave 99 sheep to go after one? Of course, I'm not going to answer that here. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I, I think we have a little sense of that here in this little mini parable that Jesus gives about somebody coming to you at midnight. Now, don't get me wrong. I think all of us would say that if somebody came to us that we loved, that we knew, called us on the phone, or wait, do we do that anymore? Texted us. <laughs> if they were to, to let us know they're coming over and that it was urgent and we needed to let them in at, say, three or four in the morning, we'd probably do it, right? If it was someone that we knew, like trusted, I mean, this isn't something that somebody would do on a regular basis, right? Say it was a cousin that you haven't talked to in a while or, I don't know, you could use a brother or a sister. They don't have a habit of doing this. So for them to call you and say, I need to come over right now, I need something, you would probably say, yes, yes, it's, it's inconvenient, no doubt. But you're going to be there for them. I'd like to think that I'd do that for you and that you would for me. But it's not that simple. That's not what Jesus is talking about here, is it? It's different than that. This man comes knocking on the door of his neighbor and he says this. He says, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. So it's not even about the one knocking. Knocks on the door. A friend has come before me. Long journey. And um, I don't have any food to give him. I mean, think about this for a second. This is why I said it's kind of absurd. Who would actually do that in the middle of the night? If you call me up in the middle of the night and tell me you're hungry, I'd probably say, um, what's the catch? Why didn't you call me earlier? Or you've waited this long? Why couldn't you wait to the morning? Well, the reality is I'd probably hang up. Well, let's be honest. The reality is I'm kind of a heavy sleeper, so I probably wouldn't hear you. I don't know. Uh, but you get the idea here. Of course he's not going to open up the door. Why would he do that? Yet, this is what Jesus says. He says, the man won't give him anything, but because of his impudence, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. In the same way, ask, seek, and knock. 
Now, when you first hear this, you're thinking, okay, so what you're telling me is I need to keep praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And and then maybe God's going to answer my prayers because I'm that annoying neighbor and I can do that. But I don't think that's what we should take from this. Because Jesus is going to bring us back to the fact that we are allowed to address God by using the word father. He brings up this fatherly example. If your son asks for a fish, would you as a father give him a serpent? Of course not. Ooh, sorry, just had that image of that snake again. Or if he asks for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Of course not. And this is where he really drops it in. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Of course, the key is the Holy Spirit, right? The father loves to give his spirit. He wants to be close to us. But what we find, though, is that we don't have to worry about asking because it's not a neighbor. It's not an inconvenience. This is our father that we get to address. So if a neighbor is willing to do this, open his doors for the individual that continually pounds on the door and asks for help, how much more so will the one that allows for us to call him father hear us? See, we don't have to worry about the repetition. We don't have to worry about how many times we ask him. We don't have to worry about if he hears us or not. We know that we have a father, and this isn't just a father, any father. I know some people out there have a poor image of fathers, rightfully or wrongfully. I know it's out there. Every situation is different. But he's the good father. He's a great father. He is... He's the best father. Now, if we were to take this by itself, we'd have to continue to follow Luke, and we will, of course, do that to see how we can trust what Jesus' words are. How can we really truly know that this father is a good father? But then, of course, we see what the father was willing to do for us. He actually sacrificed his own son. So if the father was willing to do this, if the father was willing to go through this, if the father was willing to put his son on a cross to nail him there, I don't think we have to worry about going to the Lord in prayer and him hearing us. For he's already shown us how much he loves us. What a great word for us. And then it turns. It's going to turn because Jesus is not going to just or only address the disciples. Now, he's going to be addressing the crowds. As I said, things are going to get a little bit crazy, right? Jesus is casting out demons. He's been doing this all along. But then people start to question. They start to test. Now, remember, it's the evil one who tried to put the Lord God to the test, It's friends of Beelzebub or the devil that does the testing. And this is exactly what the crowd is trying to do to Jesus. Wait, how are you driving out these demons? You're doing it by driving out in the name of Beelzebub. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? You're telling me I'm driving out the serpent in the name of the serpent? Who does that? 
That doesn't even make any sense. That would be like me calling my faithful congregation member over here and saying, hey, will you take care of the snake? And he says, well, just so you know, the snake and I, we're actually on the same side, but I'll go ahead and remove them anyway. Well, first of all, that just sounds ludicrous, being on the same side as a snake. Ooh, sorry, I had the image again. No, he's on my side, right? <laughs> we're, we're not divided on this. We were working together. And for Jesus, he's like, wait a second. How could I be driving out the demon in the name of the demons? This is just ridiculous. Why would I be doing that? And if I'm doing that, you have individuals who are driving out demons as well. And what name are they using? <laughs> no one who is stronger than Beelzebub is here. Though he certainly is strong. But Jesus is the one who's stronger still. See, and this brings us to this next point that gets, I think, very overlooked. In fact, it's probably not read in churches very often. It's verse 24 and following where it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return back to the house from which I came. Now, what's Jesus talking about when he's talking about this? He's talking about when demons are actually driven out or when they're, when they're gone, right? Eventually, they're going to come back unless, unless the place that was cleaned out gets replaced with something else. I want you to think about that for a second. If you have a demon inside of you, it gets driven out, what's going to replace it? It's got to be the Holy One, right? It's got to be God. In fact, if you ever were to talk to somebody who is a recovering alcoholic, they will totally jump all over this. If they have this addiction to alcohol or drugs, really any addiction, they try to cut that thing out of their life, but what do they usually replace it with? It'd be very easy to replace it with something else. If it's alcohol, they might replace it with drugs. If not drugs, then they might replace it with eating, right? They find a new addiction. What they tell you is you need to find that higher power, right? I know it's kind of generic. It needs to be Jesus. It needs to be something else. Otherwise, you're going to have that addiction in some other form. It's kind of true with idol worship, isn't it? You should worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. A lot of times that I've found that if I'm not worshiping God, I'm worshiping something else, right? And so when we get to Lent, I try to cut that out. Don't eat chocolate. <laughs> Then I'll replace it with something else if I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'll just eat candy. If I'm not going to eat candy, I'll drink soda, right? We find something else to replace these things with. But there's only one thing that'll satisfy our souls. There's only one thing that's stronger than Beelzebub. And that's God. That's Jesus. Now we see that uh, the conversation continues a little bit. Because the people start asking for signs. Which is hilarious. I think it's hilarious because what has Jesus been doing? Look, he's casting out demons. He's healing people. What more can he do to satisfy you? Again, this comes back to the same temptation that Satan gave to Jesus. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In the same manner, Jesus says, hey, look, one greater than Jonah is here, but I'll give you the same sign as Jonah. Just as he was in the belly of the fish, I won't say whale, but the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will. And we know what that sign is going to be, don't we? That's the resurrection where Jesus will come forth. All right, we're about out of time. Man, I'm sorry. We missed kind of the last couple of sections here 
Uh, woe to the Pharisees and the lawyers. Uh, the light that's in you. Man, the light that's in you, that's, that's a pretty good one too, isn't it? Uh, talking about how the things that we see, right? What comes into the eye, what we're looking at, that really kind of controls the rest of the body. You know, talking about addictions, you can include that in there. But really, I think what it has to do with is what are you looking at on a regular basis? What's the church looking at? It? Are, are we focused on something other than Christ? If we're focused on Christ, then the light is in us and we are going to be following him wherever he calls us to go. If our eyes are focused on something else, well, then we're going to have darkness in us. That's why we don't want to water down the Bible, right? That's why we don't want to water down God's message. We want to be in the truth. We want to be in the light. All right, and the last section has to do with the Pharisees and the lawyers. I'm not going to talk much about that because I think I already did. Um, just has to do with there being a lot of friction, the Pharisees and the lawyers. Um, they are focused on their, their rituals, on their way, their understanding of things, that they're not going to be open to hearing what the Word of God has to say through the Savior. And so the friction continues and will continue to do so as we move forward. All right, tomorrow we are going to be in Luke chapter 12. We get to talk about the rich fool. We get to talk about anxiousness. I'm sure that's not bothering anybody during this time of year. Anxiousness, pff, I'm sure it's fine. But we'll see you tomorrow, okay, everybody?